chat about. Today, I'm very lucky to be joined by a neurologist from Ohio, my first American guest, I believe, I'm quite excited, um, who also has their own podcast, uh, Neurotransmitters, did you say it was called? Sorry, I've already forgotten, that's good, isn't it? You've literally <laughs> just told me. Oh, No, God. That's, that's exactly right. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on and chatting to me. Um, it's really appreciated. Um, I, I don't think I've had, A, I've not had a neurologist on before, and I've not had anyone on from America, and this, I've completely forgotten. So this is very exciting for me. This is very new. I like it. I feel honored. Well, it's one of the first, so hopefully one of many. Um, so let's see how we get on. Um, so yeah, I thought maybe we'd start with, um, obviously you're a neurologist, you come across lots of different conditions, but I thought we'd start um, primarily with FND and then kind of branch out and see how we go from there and see what we can end up discussing. I do like a challenge to see where we can end up. It normally ends up somewhere random, but I do like that. Um, yeah. So in terms of FND from your side, um fnd like how would you describe it have you worked with many patients with it what's the process like in america i guess would be my first sort of starting point for it yeah so you know it's uh it's one of those things where it's it's something you don't really encounter kind of in the the undergraduate medical education curriculum mm -hmm. very much right it's not necessarily you know like a quote unquote a sexy diagnosis <laughs> Um, the, okay, fair enough. <laughs> you know, like, uh, like, you know, you kind of get these, like, you know, like Dr. House kind of things, like these yeah. medical mysteries. And, yeah. you know, it's it doesn't have that um, kind of obscure mitochondrial metabolic underpinnings. Um, mm. Although, you know, I could you could certainly make an argument that there are some some unusual uh, neuroconnectivity issues that, uh, you know, we're only now starting to really understand better yeah. due to some some excellent research out there. Hmm. But, um, but yeah, it's one of those things where you, you know, starting out as like a, a resident in neurology, you start to encounter these, these episodes, right. Of, you know, maybe it's someone with weakness, maybe it's someone with trouble walking or, hmm. you know, these, uh, ep episodic attacks of, you know, inability to control their body. And you're mm -hmm. like, well, is this some sort of weird movement disorder? Are they having strokes or, you know, TIAs, hmm. things like this. And you, you run down all these pathways and, sometimes you find out, well, no, that's not what's happening. And you end up uh, kind of in this, uh, you know, functional neurologic disorder camp mm. of yeah. various stripes. And I think part of the reason why it's been such a challenging field in many ways is because it is kind of a very heterogeneous population, right? Uh, like we were just talking about the, there are these different manifestations or phenotypes, mm. if you will, mm. where, you know, people have different types of symptoms, right? So maybe someone with stroke-like symptoms, someone with seizure-like symptoms, someone with balance problems. So all these different ways. And, mm. you know, we, I guess it depends, you know, if you're a, a lumper or a splitter. Um, <laughs> a lumper or a splitter. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's like one of those kind of like cognitive uh, tricks, okay. but um you know, can we, can we lump these different phenomena together yeah. from a, like an underlying physiology standpoint, or do we need to split them apart to better understand what are the best, like what are the causes and what are the best treatments for people mm. with different 
different flavors of FND. I like that so, flavor, flavors of FND. Yes. That's a nice way. Of, I like that. That's, <laughs> that's a good way to describe because it is. It is so different. Like I said, it's so different for every single person. And yeah. I don't think I've ever come across someone who has exactly the same set of symptoms as as I do. Like it might be, yeah, we have similarities in the fact that our walk is different, mm-hmm. but the way our walk presents is so different within itself. So you have that variety and the different flavors of it with even within that little sub bit and it gets it's really hard to like I would imagine from your side as the neurologist it must be really hard to try and diagnose that because there's so many different presentations of it yeah you always want to make sure that you're you know regardless of what what the symptoms are that you have the right diagnosis right Mm. but um but yeah it's one of those things where where there's no no specific test yeah um so, and that, that certainly, I mean, you know, you're, you're in the online space, right? You know, that there's yeah. a, a somewhat vocal uh, population that uh, is very kind of anti-FND as yes. a diagnosis. Yes. And, you know, I can, I can see where they're coming from, but uh, you know, I don't think it's the most helpful conversation sometimes. It's definitely um, a challenge. Yes. <laughs> but, but yeah, that kind of goes into, you know, like what are the you know, and that I think there's been some some really good papers over the years from different groups like like in Europe and uh, like in different parts of the U.S. where they're mm-hmm. looking like what are the the symptoms that people present with that help yeah. us kind of go down the right pathway in terms of coming to a diagnosis and there are you know certainly some overlaps you know my mm-hmm. my background is um, you know I, I practice mostly as a general neurologist but. Uh, I have a specialty in epilepsy specifically. Okay. Yeah. So when I would be working in the epilepsy monitoring unit, right, we have people come in, we put the the EEG wires on their scalp, you know, mm-hmm. watch the brain activity. Yeah. Uh, capture, you know, the whole goal is to capture a spell on mm. video recording, EEG recording. So we yeah. can see, does the spell correlate with abnormal brain activity or not? Yeah. Is there and, is there a link there yeah. or is it completely separate? Exactly. And, you know, statistically, and I don't know if these numbers hold true in the UK, but um, in the US, roughly 40% of people who are admitted to to the epilepsy monitoring unit for these refractory spells, right, people who aren't responding to medication, Hmm. um, end up being uh, non-epileptic. And most of these are in the FND camp, you know, there's some with like behavioral issues, maybe people with like intellectual disability, things like that. But Hmm the the lion's share is mostly fnd mm. and so you know a lot of one of the things you don't think about is that uh there's actually been a lot of study into how is the best way to communicate that diagnosis to people because mm. it right it it does kind of challenge a lot of preconceived notions about how the the brain and the body work together right yeah and it's i think it's like over the course of this podcast, I've spoken to so many different people and everyone's diagnosis story is slightly different. Mm-hmm. And I think it's such a powerful, in that moment where you are being told what you have, that person delivering that news has that in their hands, the ability to either make it okay or make you feel really rubbish. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's such a powerful moment in that journey that you then go on. And there were a couple of papers written I can't remember who by and I about how you have that conversation with someone um about how to deliver the diagnosis and not going on the lines of well we've excluded everything else so therefore it must be FND but actually trying to work the other way around because I think whilst FND may not have it's not like a tumor or a stroke where there's there's 
maybe physically something in the brain to see there will be we just maybe aren't aware of it yet mm-hmm. and sort of saying oh well by the process of exclusion we've figured out it's fnd that can be quite hard as well i think on the person getting that diagnosis did that make sense yeah right that sounded I, really i sounded really smart in my head then and went actually i don't know if I've no no like that's that uh, <laughs> that's pretty spot on right it's it's this uh, this paradigm shift in thinking you know yeah. over the last couple decades where and I, I still know you know I still know some older neurologists who who consider FND you know of course they don't call it FND they still use the older names mm-hmm. but uh, consider an exclusionary diagnosis and yeah. even outside of neurology I would say this is even more of a prevalent thing because it just you know it hasn't even filtered out of the specialty really yes it's uh, kind and, of stuck isn't it right where you still you know you still hear the term pseudo seizure a lot. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it's, it's frustrating, right? It's, it's got this implication that it's fake. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's a lot. To, sometimes that's how the diagnosis is communicated to people, which is terrible. It's really hard when you get that as the way that's been communicated as well, because you're like so much, there's so much going on when you're going through that process, you might have lost the ability to walk, talk, you're seizing, you don't know what's going on. And right. then the person delivering that news goes, oh, well, it's all in your head. And you're like, great. Now well, what? I mean, yeah, to be fair, a lot of neurologic diagnoses are in your head, right? Well, well so. yes, <laughs> but it's, I think it's the way that that's phrased is it's, yes. it's that you're faking it. Oh, it's, it's all in your head. You're choosing to do it. And you're like, why on earth would I choose to have seizures throughout the day? Why would I choose to walk like I've had an accident in my pants? Like I wouldn't choose to do that. Um, so, yeah, I get it. Most neurology is in your head. I fully appreciate that. <laughs> I think it's the way Sorry, that... I just can't resist a bad pun. <laughs> yeah. No, no, you go for it. Absolutely fine. But I think it's the way it's handled, isn't it? It's yes. the way it's put forward. It's the body language. It's the tone. It's all of that stuff that adds to that process of being diagnosed in a way that isn't, doesn't make you want to come out the room and just cry and go, I'm making it all up. No one believes me. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, even if you leave out, right, there's the human empathy piece of the equation, which is a mm. huge piece of it. But yeah. You know, from the from the physician clinician side of things, well, it's like if you don't communicate the diagnosis effectively mm-hmm. and you don't make sure that everyone's on the same, you know, the same page in terms of understanding, yeah, then these people are going to continue having these spells. They're not going to get the right treatment. And guess what? They're going to come back to your office. They're going to come back to the hospital mm-hmm. uh, and you're going to have to, you know, continue dealing with these spells. Mm-hmm. So even if you just take it from a purely rational self-interest perspective, which is kind of like the lowest common denominator uh, mm. from, from human empathy perspective, mm. it's like, it's really not in your best interest to, to act in such a way. Yeah. Um, it's, I feel it, it's in so many ways, just very self-defeating. I think also like at the end of the day, we're all human. The person mm-hmm. sat in front of you that you're diagnosing is still a human, whether regardless right. of what they're presenting and symptom wise, they're still a human. They still deserve that sort of like, that empathy like you said like it's not even the in my head the the role of a doctor is not to make the person the diagnosing feel bad or feel like shitty yeah. sorry i'm gonna swear because i feel like that's the only way to phrase it mm. but unfortunately the case with fnd diagnosis can be actually that you are made to feel like you've done this to yourself um and that you've brought it on and that therefore there's nothing you can do i've, I've come across so many people that have had it basically be said oh well yep you've got this thing there's nothing we can do for you off you go and they're just left and you're like how how is that possible but the way in which it's it's described to them does just make them think that 
they they've made it happen themselves they they've woken up one day and gone you know what today i'm gonna just choose not to walk properly um and that's such a hard you're already processing so much when you're going through a diagnosis but then to process that on top it's just so much harder from my side (laughs) no no i mean it is right i mean and if you you look at some of this data out there in terms of you know population uh statistics and things like that the like if we compare so say like uh epileptic versus non-epileptic seizures mm. the the risk of like accidents and things like that and injury is is comparable between the two groups right yeah. and like it's not like people are out there intentionally causing accidents to themselves or no. things like that that's 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 not what's happening at all it's yeah. the, this um this you know, there's there's a control problem in the body. It's just not what we're used to seeing. Yes, it's not. It doesn't fit that nor. I'm I'm doing air quotes here. Normal <laughs> pattern of exactly. what you would expect to see, because like I said, in epilepsy, you can see there will be signs. I'm I'm not I'm not an expert in any way, shape, or form. But in my head, you would see there's signs of it on like your EEG and things like that. There's there's signs that it's there, and it can be controlled with medication. With the non-epileptic, I guess it's slightly different. There isn't maybe that sign. I don't know. Correct. Never thought about it. <laughs> yeah. No. You're 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 absolutely right. Right. So like in a, the typical typical spell. Right. Um, so there's there's two pieces to it uh, from the from the epilepsy physician side of things. Right. Mm-hmm. So we've got the the clinical manifestation that we see, the semiology or the study of the signs. Okay. Uh, is kind of the highfalutin type of word. Mm-hmm. But um, so there's there's certain clinical like you just see on the video that suggest epileptic versus non-epileptic. Yeah. And then there is the actual EEG recording where you expect to see like, you know, different epileptiform activity, like spikes, sharp waves, various other patterns that can yeah. be a little more obscure. Yeah. Um, but there are always exceptions, right? Uh, that's mm. just how medicine tends to work. There's always these edge cases. Yeah. Um, so I've definitely had uh, patients who have what we call scalp negative EEGs, right? So scalp EEG is the most common one. Obviously, there's the the more invasive kind where they put the electrodes into the brain tissue Ooh. itself, which is, you know, very selected group of people. Yeah. But for, so I always think of it, you know, the skull is basically a filter for the electrical activity, right? So it has mm-hmm. to involve a certain amount of the surface of the brain before it makes it through to the EEG recordings, right? It's yes. kind of like, like if we put our microphones on the other side of the wall and you had to like scream to get your recording done, right? You have to reach a certain volume before, before I get it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, I'm, following. I'm following so far. Doing awesome. Current. <laughs> so there are certain types of seizures where the amount of brain tissue will not cause a change on the EEG. Okay. Uh, these are typically seizures where the person has kind of preserved consciousness essentially. Mm-hmm. And right. So in FND, a lot of people with, with non-epileptic spells do have preserved consciousness. So there is, this is the part where the video becomes so much more important because the EEG may not show anything. But and the video so then kind of, does. Exactly. So there's certain patterns of behavior, movements, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, that are more typical of one versus the other. And uh, that that is the very important uh, piece of it because you need someone who is experienced in knowing what that video is supposed to look like. Yes. Um, to see the to, signs, to know. Exactly. Oh, this is this falls under this camp. Whilst the scalp EG, scalp EG, did you say was negative? Like correct, there's there's correct. this there's this other element. Yeah. That, no, yes. that makes sense. It's not something I'd ever considered, but that does make sense. 
and the you know just to add an extra wrinkle to it Go. you know <clears throat> the data it varies the number varies depending on what study you look at but there's roughly about 10 percent of people who will have both okay. fmd and epilepsy yeah and so then you you have to really when you're talking to them you have to like well is this an epileptic seizure or is this mm. the the fmd seizure yeah. that's that's coming on and so does that mean i need to change their medications or does it mean i need to uh focus on like different types of therapy mm. so a lot of times you have to bring them back into the epilepsy monitoring unit to capture if they develop new spells to find out like what's going on like which way do we need to go I guess that must be really hard when you've got that crossover. Yeah, I know you said it's about 10%, but that must be really hard to work out what part is the FND and what part is the epilepsy. Because like you said, it, it crosses over so much. You've got no real way of distinguishing them. So how, yeah. do, you, how do you go about doing that? So, so a lot of it, yeah, like, like so many things in, in neurology, it really comes down to the story getting a, a thorough story. So with, with most epileptic um, seizures, the, the seizures tend to be very stereotyped. So they tend to have the same pattern. Uh, mm. I always remember one of my, one of my attendings when I was in training said a seizure is like a story. It's got a beginning, a middle and an end. Yeah. And so that story tends to be the same pretty for very long periods of time for most yeah. people. Now there's always again there's always exceptions. Yeah. But so when you start seeing new spells, that always makes you a little concerned. So mm. you know, it depends on and again, you know, like we talked about FND being a heterogeneous group, epilepsy is also a heterogeneous group. So is the cause of their epilepsy because they have a genetic condition, because they have a brain tumor, because yeah. they had a head injury, you know, and on and on and on. So yeah. there are certain things that should be relatively static over time and some things that might be a little more dynamic. Yeah. So it, again, it kind of goes back to each person's individual context. Mm. And if it's a static diagnosis, then well, those those seizures shouldn't really be changing if we have them on a reasonable dose of medication and things had been well controlled before. Yeah. There should so be no reason start... for the change now being being seen. Exactly. So you yeah. got to dig into like, well, are these new spells? Are these the same spells? And are they a lot just of times... presenting differently? What exactly. what's going on? Yeah. So, so yeah, that it, it, you have to really spend a lot of time asking a lot of questions. And, you know, one of the things I always recommend, like if there's someone at home with you, hmm. if they're able to just video record it on their cell phone, that can be super helpful. Okay. I, I think, so I, I've had, so I have non-epileptic seizures mm -hmm. um, and I am aware, I don't lose consciousness. I am aware oftentimes I can talk through them. Sometimes I can't, the one I had mm -hmm. more recently, there was no way I was talking through that one. That was just happening to me at that point. But yeah. I've, I've filmed everything else from my walk to my speech to my um, dissociation. I've never thought of filming the seizures, though. But that does make a lot of sense. If yeah. you then need it as that backup to take to a neurologist and go, hey, look, this is what it presents like. I know I'm not doing it right now, but here is what it looks like. Um, it's just not, not something I'd ever put together i've done everything else to take into doctors and be like look this is my walk this is my speech this is what happens never yeah. done it with that side i don't know why well like you sense, said though. it's uh <laughs> it's one of those things right it, it comes and it goes whether yeah. they're epileptic or non-epileptic yeah. and so they're so fleeting for many people mm. that it's it's really hard to kind of catch it in the act yeah and uh 
yeah I and mean, at that point yeah. you're also like i would imagine the person that's with you is more focused on the fact that you're on the floor seizing than right. filming you because you know you're seizing you're on the floor instead of oh i'll just get my camera out and just film you whilst you do this it's it seems like a it's not a normal response is it in that no. in that respect no no it, it really isn't uh, i mean occasionally <laughs> you do get you do get people who uh, have a bit of a medical background who are family members and they're like, yeah. oh, I need to record this so I can show it to the to the doctor. Yes. Uh, I would say that's the exception more than the yeah. rule. Yeah. But um, but yes, you're quite right. Everyone, you know, especially the first time or the you know, first few times it happens, mm. people do get quite panicked, mm. which is understandable, right? There's this thing going on, don't know what's happening, person's yeah. not responsive. Uh, and it, yeah, it's it's super stressful. Yeah, and I think from the person that's I so when I've gone through mine, I'm very much focused on like, you know, breathing because that's important. You need to be able to breathe mm -hmm. and just trying to kind of regulate that. But for the people around me, especially if they've never seen it, like I had an instant over the weekend where I ended up seizing and I was around people who'd never seen me seize before. And it's kind of trying to give them those what to do when mm -hmm. that happens. Um, and I, I guess, I mean, you have more experience in this, but I guess for everyone, it's slightly different, but the, the basics are the same of you keep them safe. You, you make sure that they're not going to hit their head on anything. You make sure they, they've got an airway. It's always helpful. Um, yes. <laughs> and you, you time it if, if it's needed to be timed. Um, and you don't hold them down is from my experience, what I can, the basics of it. Is there anything important I've missed? No, I, I think that's that's pretty much it. I, I usually say the, the same rules apply for epileptic first aid yeah. or uh, a, like an epileptic seizure first aid as it would for a non-epileptic spell. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, all those things you said, right? Make sure they're not in a dink, you know, because like, maybe it's out on the sidewalk or in the yeah. street and you know, make sure they're in a safe location. Yeah. Uh, make sure they haven't hit their head or, they're, you know, dislocated their shoulder, things like that. Because we do like um, to thrash around when we're going for it. Yeah, we, we yeah. Do, we do like to bounce a little bit, or at least I do. <laughs> well, no, I've 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 had some people who uh, because sometimes some people's spells will go on so long, yeah, that they they have caused muscle injury and that can lead to like kidney injury and you know it can be quite serious. Uh, yeah. In in those prolonged episodes. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's it's just it's having those things up your sleeve, isn't it? As the person that not just as the person that might be going through it but the person watching it as well so that you know okay I do this 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 and this and this is the best way to tackle it um but it sounds very clinical when you say it's almost like a checklist if you like well but I, I guess yeah, it I might mean, help no I, I think that's an exactly the right way to think about it it's because right you know people people going through medical training right that's that's how how you start you you build these checklists so yeah. that you you don't miss something uh, because you know just because we've been doing it for a while doesn't mean that we get you know flustered and yeah. you know heart rate goes up and all that jazz yeah so it's important to have these checklists that kind of internalize so <clears throat> that you you don't miss things that you remember what you need to do what not to do yeah um so no i think i don't think there's anything wrong with having a checklist it's it's good to be able to tuck away that emotional part of your you know response at least you know in the moment and yeah and kind of deal with that after things are resolved yeah deal with it after afterwards and I think that's fine but I think at the time you just have to and I, I guess it's really hard for me because I'm the person that does it I'm not the person mm. watching it but from my side I'd much rather 
have someone talk me through and make jokes distract me because that's how mine that's that's what's helpful for me um and then we can both cry about it afterwards then if you start panicking whilst I'm seizing then I panic because I'm not fully aware of what's going on I'm aware enough to know that you're panicking and then I get panicked with like oh something's happening like I need to now be worried um but I the I think having that checklist it must for people listening it might it might sound really clinical and really devoid of emotion but it's not meant in that way it's just meant as a way of being able to give back a bit of control I think to the person that's going through it and the person watching it if you've got that semblance of control and you know kind of roughly what you need to do it takes that element of panic out I would have thought um yeah right it's you know being prepared uh, doesn't mean that you don't care right yes no completely and you can cry about it afterwards and that's perfectly fine like absolutely <laughs> have a cry have a laugh whatever you need to do afterwards that's absolutely fine um but i think the the common thing or the thing that i found is that when i've had seizures and mine are non-epileptic people tend to try and hold me mm-hmm. and restrict my movement i guess because they're worried i'm going to hurt myself where i'm thrashing around but actually that's not from my side that's not what should be happening is would you also agree with that yeah no i i I would agree you're more i would say you're more likely to lead to some some injury uh if you if you are trying to restrain people Mm. i feel like you just kind of gotta let it take its course and let it go wherever it wants to go as long as the person with you is aware of your surroundings and right. can move like pillows and stuff into positions if like you are you know near a radiator where to try and soften right. anything <laughs> i'm yes. not recommending you just let them seize into a radiator that's not what i'm saying yeah right um, you don't want to spill like boiling water or bang no. your head on a bookshelf or you know <laughs> don't, yeah. don't, don't, don't do any of that right. i feel like quite often the i know with mine i try and like hold mine back i try and like control mine Mm-hmm. So that I don't seize as dramatically, I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. But I guess that's also the same. I shouldn't be doing that either, then, should I? I should just let it take its course. Well, you know, that's that is certainly a point of debate. Uh, and okay. now I'm no I'm no psychologist, but um, but there there is certainly a a school of thought that says that uh, kind of like acting more directly on different flavors of FND mm. uh, can sometimes lead to like more of a block or more mm. of an emer- re-emergence essentially when you kind of let your guard down. Yeah. Um, and again, that's, that's just anecdotally. I don't know if the evidence really supports that or if there is evidence really to say one way or the other. Yeah. I think it's just, it's whether it's epileptic, if it's, whether it's non-epileptic or epileptic, something's still going on and it's still quite daunting whether or not you're used to it and it's an everyday occurrence for you or it happens once every couple of weeks, whatever it is, it's still something that's going on. It still needs to be, I'm doing hand gestures. I know you can't see my hand gestures, but there are hand (laughs) gestures going because I can't think of the word I want. I don't know what the hand gesture is actually trying to achieve though. Mm. No, it's gone. It's disappeared. Either way, (laughs) it's okay to have some sort of checklist if you're someone that's watching someone go through this. Um, And actually, if it's something that hasn't been seen by doctors or whatever, then filming it might be really helpful. It I would say just, so, yeah. Yeah, it might just give a, a clue over um, and it doesn't mean that you don't care about that person. So I think people get stuck on that a little bit. 
Yes. No, I think, yeah, yeah, it's just another another kind of first date, essentially. Yes, it's just a different kind, <laughs> but that's okay. That's fine. Um, so in terms of kind of the process in which someone might go through in America to either start getting moving towards a diagnosis of FMD or getting in to see a neurologist, what's kind of the process for you guys? How does that work? Yeah, so, you know, and I think it might be similar in the UK in as much as there, there's a huge shortage of neurologists in the yeah. United States. And so, so wait times, depending on the part of the country, are actually quite long, uh, yeah. anywhere from three to six months. Okay. Um, I would say that's pretty standard in many parts of the country. Yeah. You know, um, so I was, um, up until two years ago, I was working at a, at a teaching hospital I'm technically still a teaching house, but I was working in a, as an instructor at a neurology residency program. Yeah. Um, and so we obviously we had a higher density of neurologists in that town. Yeah. But uh, I've moved, you know, closer to my wife's family uh, up in the kind of northeast corner. If people are familiar, it's just a little bit south of Cleveland. Uh, but um, there's uh, so we have, I just heard the numbers yesterday, around 600, 650,000 people kind of in our service area. Whoa. And we have uh, two full-time neurologists. Whoa. And, and then uh, a half dozen uh, advanced practice. That's nurse practitioners, PAs, things like that in the department. Blimey. So, right. And so we're, we're about... 60 miles away from Pittsburgh and Cleveland, which are kind of the nearest like large academic centers. So, uh, so yeah, we don't have enough, uh, neurology staff to, to really accommodate the need in the area. Mm. Now I work mostly in hospital, uh, at this point, um, I'll probably be shifting in the next year or two. Uh, we're just kind of in a building phase, yeah. but, um, so we don't have a proper, epilepsy monitoring unit so a lot of times what i end up doing is because we can do continuous eeg monitoring video eeg monitoring and so i will still people who come in with spells that sound suspicious for fnd mm. um i will put them on continuous eeg for you know anywhere up to like a day a few days and uh, i mean as long as they're willing to stick around in the hospital yeah. with us. <laughs> As long as you're uh, willing to stay for that long, we can do that. <laughs> yes, right. I know no one no one likes it. Um, but uh, I, we do, I would say, at least once or twice a month, because I, I, I cover the hospital every other week, essentially. Hmm. But um, at least a couple times a month, we're, we're diagnosing someone with, with FND, um, hmm. kind of a new diagnosis. Yeah. And... Um, I would say that that is, you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's, it's not well known amongst the medical population, but it is uh, very common. Yes. It's, it's and, like the second most common uh, in the UK. I think I saw something that was like, it's the second most common reason that people go to see a neurologist. And yet it's something that is the least known about, like has the least yeah. information about it. and just yes. blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's the, kind of that historical holdover from it being obscured, you know, ever since Freud onwards. So, like, there's like this two hundred year. Freud, eh? I know, right? <laughs> this two hundred year gap in research uh, up until just the last like twenty years or so. So, so yeah, there is this like it's it's very much slowed down compared, to, which is kind of you know just a 
quick uh, quick tangent right uh i thought it was very fascinating that you know like charcot in paris in the 1800s was investigating into into this right the the historical quote-unquote hysteria yeah and um and then it kind of all got derailed when things split into neurology and psychiatry into different disciplines. Yeah, and then they were like, oh, wait, we can't combine it because, you know, it, no, it has to be separate. And they're like, does it? Now, right. the time, it's like, does it though? But at the time, yeah, they've been like, oh, no, it has to be separate. Right. So, so yeah, so a lot, you know, the first step is getting to a diagnosis. So the two ways that usually happens is we, you know, if people come into the emergency, then we usually go that pathway. If people come mm -hmm. into the clinic, uh, we've actually been working with a uh, an independent company recently, which does home video EEG monitoring, mm -hmm. which isn't appropriate for everybody. Yeah. But um, for people who aren't already on anti-seizure medications, it is, I think, a valid option for spell capture. Because uh, they can come, they set up the cameras in the house, you know, they, they put you on recording and, mm. you know, they can leave that on for three to five days. And, you know, that can be very useful in certain people. At least you're in the comfort of your own home. Right. You, know, you can eat your own food because hospital food can be somewhat <laughs> interesting at points. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, that makes sense. Absolutely. So, but yeah, the, the, the tricky bit comes in when people are already on different types of anti-seizure medications. Well, I can't really recommend taking them off that at home un yes. unobserved right like well what if i'm wrong what if they do have epilepsy yeah. and now they're just having seizures at home and they you know something terrible happens that's yeah. that's the poor form i would say there's there's like that fine line isn't there between right. being able to do it in your own home but equally if you've got other things that are interacting like different medications and stuff then <clears throat> probably the safest bet is to do it under medical observation let's say Yes, no, I, I would agree 100%. And so, so yeah, in the in the appropriately selected people, you know, home monitoring can be can be very a good choice, uh, mm. both in terms of like hospital resources, as well as like the comfort of the person getting the testing done. Yes. Um, so spell capture is is kind of the the first goal. So like we talked about before, you know, is there epileptic activity? Is there not? What's mm. the video look like? Does it look typical for a non-epileptic spell, epileptic spell with without EEG changes, and so on and so forth. Mm. So, once we've gotten to that diagnosis, you know, <clears throat> then then the really hard part starts. Yeah. So <clears throat> then you start going uphill a little bit. Right, and so like I think this is I know this is very common across the U.S. and I, I suspect it's similar in the U.K. is that getting to someone who is experienced with the therapeutic side of fnd can be very challenging yeah um especially when we're talking about the different different types of it like is it the gait disorder is it the non-epileptic seizures and so on yeah um because they all require different like very very individually tailored um programs yes and there are there are some some therapy programs developing out there over the last like decade or so um, but they're mostly restricted to large academic centers or like large metropolitan areas, right? Yeah. In, in a place like where I am, there's not really anyone specifically who focuses on that as part of their kind of treatment paradigm. Yeah, you just so, kind of, you're you're under someone and you're kind of learning about it yourself along with that professional. Exactly. In a and, way, yeah. And yeah, it's it's not ideal, but as long as you can find someone who who is willing to 
like educate themselves and yeah. learn about, you know, kind of, it does require some outside the box thinking. Uh, a oh lot yeah. Of the time. We, FND never likes to be dull, does it? It just, no, no. It's, <laughs> yeah. It's highly variable. It likes to keep everybody and it does mean everybody on its days. <laughs> yeah. Just to see what it can get away with. Yes. And yeah, that's uh, just when you think you have it pinned down, you know, it, it can change on you a little bit. And you're like, Oh, it worked yesterday, but it doesn't work today. You're like, Oh man back to the drawing board think again yeah. right and so yeah it, it ends up being one of those things where like you know if all you have in your toolkit is a hammer right everything becomes a nail and, and yes. that's not going to work no so so yeah it, it does require a lot of, of creativity on the therapy team side mm. um now speaking to it again from my you know my my little piece of the pie on the mm. neurology side it. of things <laughs> so one thing that that we do see very often that I think is a little unfortunate is that a lot of times, you know, we get we get to a diagnosis of FND and a lot of times the neurologist will kind of cut people loose. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> so, I, I was going to try and link across to that if you hadn't made. But yes, completely. And I think that's I think that's inappropriate for a number of reasons. Um, one there is a fairly high burden of other neurologic conditions in this in this population hmm. so even if these spells aren't quote unquote neurologic uh and i am air quoting here as well <laughs> but um, happening it's fine we can yes. picture it <laughs> um but there there are often more traditional diagnoses that come along with it, right? A lot of times these people, maybe they have a history of traumatic brain injury. Maybe mm. they have neuropathy. Maybe they have vertigo. Maybe yeah. they have migraines, right? So there is still, there's still work to be done from a primarily like neurologic side of things. Um, and sometimes even if initially there isn't something identified, it can develop over the subsequent years. So I, it, it's very good to kind of, you know, keep, keep tabs on people and yes. make sure they aren't kind of lost uh, into the ether because mm. I mean, there's, there's two ways that happens. One, you know, the diagnosis is given very poorly people. Well, right. Obviously if someone's coming in and being a jerk to you, you're not really <laughs> going to trust their, their clinical judgment. No. Uh, so what ends up happening most of the time is people end up bouncing around from doctor to doctor and they, they end up kind of stuck in limbo where they, they, you know, were given a diagnosis, whether correct or not. But, you know, if you don't trust the person who's giving you the diagnosis, then it's not very helpful. Oh, and you wouldn't trust them what they said to do next. And right. It, it right. Why? Yeah. Why would I process, believe you? Right. Yeah. No, completely. I read something, um, recently basically about it was a paper on basically who should be involved in fnd treatments and it was saying actually neurologists like you just said do tend to once the diagnosis has been made you tend to lose contact with them they tend to disappear um and you go off and you see physios or speech and language or you know mm -hmm. a clinical psychologist whoever it might be but the ne neurologist tends to disappear into the kind of the ether um yes. and actually whilst yes you are being seen by lots of other doctors I think there's still that need of like that oversight and I understand it's workload and there's lots of pressure and things like that I completely get that but it just feels like you're kind of gone here you go now go see person xyz and you won't see me again and you're like hang on a minute what and there's no one really kind of taking charge of your treatment you're kind right. of 
floundering between people hoping that you end up in the right space but you've got no way to be like right well this didn't work I need to try something else or I've got a new symptom I need support with this now because you've kind of been left to paddle around in a pool without a paddle right and you know smarter people than me have have talked about this like the uh, the functional neurologic society uh, had an excellent series of podcasts uh last year mm. uh in uh, ramping up to their first society meeting but mm. uh, a lot of people are talking about you know like neurology training does prepare you uniquely to like we talked about like these new symptoms that crop up is this is this something new that needs further investigation is this mm. part of the same spectrum of the disorder yeah um and you know well i can understand the the frustration certainly of of the neurologist being one myself but mm. uh but it is important to, I mean, part part of the the treatment paradigm is uh, getting, you know, making sure people are comfortable, they are confident that everything is taken care of, right? Because, yeah. you know, I I'm sure you've you've probably talked with with him online as well. FND Portal has been yeah. just an amazing resource for oh, a yeah. lot of people. Yes, completely. Um, and I've certainly read a lot of the papers that he had linked, uh, which is kind of been very helpful for me from a professional perspective but in mm. terms of the he always has so much knowledge I'm like how do you have all this time for all this knowledge like i'm barely functioning as a human how are you doing this all <laughs> i know it's like phd thesis level uh, yes. and i'm like I, i'm going to attempt to understand but i need a dictionary to understand half of what you're saying but i'm um, it's so helpful yeah like it's so good to have people in your in that corner kind of sharing that information getting it all out but it's a bit like well that was a lot of words what yeah <laughs> but uh but it's a uh, like the the kind of the interoceptive no network right like the basically the perception of our bodies in space where does my body end uh how do i feel about like you know whether we're talking about the feeling of hungry or having to go to the bathroom versus mm -hmm. like why is my hand shaking when i don't want it to shake yeah um all you know and all all spectrums in between so it's this like you know you need to be in the right mental space for those therapeutic treatments to be effective right i i always find it fascinating and this was a, a bit of an you know a epiphany type moment for me hmm. a few years back because we always think about neuroplasticity and we think like oh it's such a great thing right someone has an injury or a stroke or something they can recover a function and etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know neuroplasticity just means that your brain can change and yeah, it just it sometimes, molds and it, it yeah. adapts doesn't it yeah right and sometimes that adaptation is bad so, <laughs> sometimes it's not a good thing right you know we can learn how to do things poorly uh right we have bad habits um just you yeah. know like like biting our fingernails or you know so on and so fnd is just kind of like a sub subconscious bad habit that yeah. our, our bodies have developed that we need to be able to kind of teach it out of uh yeah, in a very broad strokes yeah relearn and, and adapt so, right so if you're one if you're not even confident like you know do i know are all the symptoms i'm having purely from fnd mm. is there something else going on? right if there's this doubt um then that's going to impede any progress that someone might make even yeah. an appropriately designed uh therapy program mm -hmm. so and that again back to the original point that's why neurologists need to stay involved to <laughs> even if they're not doing anything but providing that reassurance and investigating any new symptoms appropriately yeah. then that's still a valuable 
part of treatment. I think also just having that oversight over it, like, okay, we've done physio, great. That 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 wasn't successful right now. Okay, now let's try um, going to see a psychologist. Okay, that's working. Let's stick with that. Now let's try and add something else in. And just responding to what's happening, I think you do tend to be a bit, you are just reacting to what the FND is doing quite a lot of the time mm -hmm. because it does change so much. And whenever it actually wants to, it just goes, you know what, today I'm just not going to work. I'm like, great, I had plans today, whatever. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to get up today, it's fine. Um, I think it's, you are normally just reacting to what's given to you. But having someone that's kind of got that general oversight and just kind of going, okay, right, we've tried, we tried this six months ago, didn't work, let's try again. And opening those doors to try those different methods and kind of adapt your treatment as well. Because at the end of the day, as the person going through it, yes, you are going through it, but you don't know what options are out there because it's not the world you're in. You don't know who you could possibly go and see because you've never necessarily had to see them before. Um, and I think it's a way of of helping. Did that make any sense? It felt like it made sense. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It, okay. it is, right? Like, why why would you, as the, the, you know, as the person who doesn't work in the medical field, know where all of these resources are located? You... And, and you, it's not to say you can't go out and research it. Completely, yeah. you can. But equally, if you don't know the path in which you need to get in to see a physio, well, right. you're already at stumbling block there, aren't you? Because you don't know how to get to them. You might know they exist. You might know they're in the hospital. But if you don't know the process to which you have to get on a waiting list to get to them, then you can't you can't ever access them. Right. And, you know, different different physiotherapists have different areas Ooh. of expertise. So yeah. you might wind up with someone who specializes in back pain as opposed to movement disorders. Yes. And they're maybe not going to be as keen on what's the best way to move forward. Yes. I think it's it's that. So I've, I've, I've had a physio. I have a clinical psychologist. I've had speech and language therapy. I've kind of had a broad range of people involved in my process, in my journey. Um, and the ones like the physio, I worked, he was lovely. But he said to me right at the beginning, like, you are the first person I've had with FND, but I want to learn. I was like, mm -hmm. absolutely. Let's if you're on my recovery train, let's go for it. If you're on it, we're going together because I don't really know. But let's do it together. Um, and I really appreciated that level of honesty from them because I was like, actually, fair play. You're saying you don't have all the answers, but you're willing to go away and look it up and try and work them out with me. Mm -hmm. And that was actually really helpful. It was like, it's not just me trying to figure out these answers now. It's someone else with me. It kind of built that team spirit of like, we can we can tackle it together. That's excellent. Yeah. But it's just, it's, I think it's hard, especially when you've got, there's so many different condition, conditions, even. Let's try that one again. So many different conditions, <laughs> aside from FND, that need so much. Sorry, my dog is barking in the background for no apparent right. reason. Stop barking. You don't need to be involved in this. Um, that need so many different treatments and so many different paths and so many different programs. It must be incredibly difficult to work out where to go. Because you're like, well... Uh, I'm doing hand gestures again you can't see them I don't know why I keep doing hand gestures but it must be a really difficult position when you're there and you're like I've got 50 different people with 50 different diagnoses all needing 50 different plans and trying to work out which one's going to go from to where and to whom and at what time must be really challenging yeah I mean you know that's that's part of the job um you know you kind you know, of I know you say yeah. it's part of the job but it still must be really quite hard 
it is. I mean, some days are harder than others, yeah. uh, definitely. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, <clears throat> I mean, and that that is, you know, well, it's a different kind of problem. But you see sometimes, at least in, in the U.S., there is in neurology a trend over the last several years towards uh, subspecialization. When, you know, in reality, what we, we need are more general neurologists um, specifically. Mm. And, you know, even though I am like an, an epileptologist to use the $5 word. That, that is a fancy word, that one. Yeah. I'm uh, not going to attempt to spell that, but that sounds really fancy. <laughs> but most of my practice is in general neurology. You know, it, yeah. I, I just like to think I have an extra skill set. Um, mm. But, but yeah, over, over, you know, cause I haven't been in practice a huge amount of time. Uh, I've been, I've been in practice for about five years now since finishing my training, hmm. but, um, which was also about five years. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> nice long period of time there. <laughs> yes. But, um, but yeah, it's, I would, I would say like 80% of my, my practice has been general neurology and you do, you know, with like that other little 20 or 30% being more epilepsy focused yeah. and you know i i have a a personal interest in i've been I, a little bit of a backstory i in college and stuff like that i really enjoyed my electromagnetics classes and stuff so <laughs> mm. i uh i do a bit of like you know guitar pedal like electronic stuff and yeah. you know it's a hobby right so i've yeah. always liked electricity and stuff like that so <laughs> i ended up doing eegs a lot in residency well that and, makes sense yeah <laughs> So I've always liked electricity. So that's how I wound up in epilepsy. <laughs> You're like, I love it now. It's fine. It's my life. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's like, I did not. And and the really funny part is I remember doing a rotation as a medical student in neurology and looking over the neurologist's shoulder at an EEG. And I was just thinking, because I wasn't even thinking about doing neurology at that point. I was like, thank goodness. I will never have to learn how to read one of those. <laughs> and uh, now it's your life. <laughs> yes, right. That That is just fate having a laugh at me. <laughs> But I see it happens sometimes, don't it? You're like, oh, I should have yeah, said that. I know. I remember distinctly that day too. I'm just like, oh my god, this thing is just incomprehensible. And um, now, and now you you are one of the few that understands that incomprehensible like thing in front of you, and you go, I know, yeah, I know what that right? means. And you're like, oh my god, how? <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's very strange how life works sometimes. Oh, indeed, indeed it is. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so um, and one of the things that we we also see in the U.S., you know, because obviously it's a very large country. Yeah. Slightly. But, only, but, only tiny, really, isn't it, the US? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but we do have these neurology deserts. And what I mean by that essentially is there are these, you know, we have a large concentration of specialists in metropolitan areas, which, mm. you know, I think is pretty universal across yeah. most of the world. Yeah. And so we, we have like just huge areas of the country where, you know, the nearest neurologist might be like 100 miles away. Oh, yeah. um, it's not quite as bad in my area as that, but the closest neurologist might be 50 miles away. You're still having to travel to see the neurologist yes, at the end of the right? day, aren't you? It's not and just so, down the road. Exactly. So we talk about things like like epileptic or non-epileptic spells. And, you know, you know, in the U.S., mass transit isn't really like super great. So getting transportation to and from places is very challenging, right? Yeah. Like getting to a physical appointment might be impossible without yeah. someone who's able to bring you. Yes. Um, which, you know, like telemedicine has been very helpful for that during the pandemic. But, mm. um, but sometimes but, you need to see someone in person. Exactly, exactly. You need to have that face-to-face. -face. It's the same It's the same here in the UK. Like um, I quite often talk about like there's a bit of postcode lottery. 
Mm. And depending where you are depends what you can access. Like I've been quite fortunate in that where I am, I've been able to access a neurologist, a physio, a speech and language therapist and a clinical psychologist. And I've had inpatient stays. I've been very fortunate that just based on where I live, I've been able to access all of that support. But friends of mine who I've gained through this journey have literally had a neurologist and that's it. Yeah. And you're like, you literally like how how does that happen that you can end up with these blank spots these deserts like you say where actually there isn't anyone like you've got there's there's no one in that area if you want to see someone that has any sort of specialism or anything like that you're going to have to travel over an hour to go and see them that's what it comes down to absolutely and there's there's not like a a choice about it you're like if you want to go and see that person you're traveling for an hour because that's where they are and that's not necessarily anyone's fault other than there's not the hospitals and the services just aren't there yet and it's getting better but it's just not there yet for those people who live in those deserts and you're like oh I feel a little bit guilty because I'm like I've I've been able to access so much and yet other people have got nothing and I think that's why I started the podcast because I was like actually if I can share some information this way at least people are getting something whether or not they take it into their own FND world or not at least there's some sort of dissemination of information going on that people can then use and take what they want from it. But it is, it's re- it sounds like it's very similar between the US and here then, that you have those blank spots of just, there's no one here. Yeah, yeah. Just spend and, for yourself. And, you know, I, I'm sure it's a similar story for a lot of people, right? The, the average yeah. time, like, you know, you come into the neurologist and maybe they're good, maybe they're not good. Um, <clears throat> then maybe they say like, well, it sounds like it might, might be seizures or epilepsy and you know they throw you on an anti-seizure medication Mm. and so a lot you know the average time from you know our average time of misdiagnosis i should say Mm. for a lot of people with fnd it's like around the seven year mark it's long isn't it yeah right if you think like people who you know their livelihoods are disrupted they they lose their ability to drive Mm. um you know they're they're just in in this terrible way for mm. for years yeah and yeah it's uh it's it's a, a real shame when especially when there are treatment options and ways mm. to improve people's lives and you know it's, avoiding it's, inappropriate treatments right it's just mind-boggling it's actually it actually just boggles my mind slightly that there are there are people out there that have been misdiagnosed and quite like a 10 i've spoken to a few people recently and they've been told they've got like MS or Parkinson's mm-hmm. or things like that. And that tends to be something that's misdiagnosed with FND. You kind of like, oh, I've been told I have MS. And then like six months later, oh, wait, no, you know, you have FND. And you're like, hang on a minute, what's going on? Which one am I sitting under? Where where am I sat now? Yeah. Um, but it is, it just, my heart goes out to those people who are waiting and still waiting to get some form of diagnosis to be able to get that support because it's just crazy. It's such a hard thing by itself anyway but then having to make that longer wait and then travel for you know hours or whatever to reach that person is just it's just a bit bonkers i can't think of another word to describe it other than bonkers yeah yeah all right life is stranger than fiction oh to, amen to that it's a bit <laughs> mad isn't it and i think it's just especially with the i i call the fickle mistress that is fnd you never yeah. quite know what the day's going to bring either you never quite know what's going on and even before diagnosis you don't really know because you don't know what's going on anyway and everything changes and stuff stuff changes kind of almost what feels like on an hourly basis and you're just responding continuously to these different symptoms that 
you don't you can't piece them all together yet and that's just really hard isn't it 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 really is i can you know obviously from the outside i can only imagine the the frustration um you know i i have them for just a tiny little snapshot in the Mm. hospital with me uh from time to time Mm. but um but yeah like like i remember uh one one woman a year back or so who it was exactly that story right she'd been diagnosed with epilepsy she came in for seizures um and you know i was like well she kept having recurrent events while she was there overnight and so the next day i i had them placed around continuous monitoring and you know we captured the spell and mm. i was fortunate enough that you know before that had happened i i you know the the nurses called me into the room she was having one of her episodes and you know the physical manifestation did not look typical for an epileptic seizure yeah so they were asking me like oh should, should we give her some some ativan or something i was like no no let's just let's just wait and um you know like you said you just kind of talk with them and you know focus i, I usually focus on the breathing as well with hmm. people it's kind of important breathing so i just saying yeah kind of right and it is, it's kind of <laughs> one of those feedback loops right people start breathing fast they become more panicked yeah. uh the heart rate goes up the blood pressure it becomes this whole like you know uh negative feedback loop yes or i should say positive feedback loop but um either but way yeah, it's a loop it's self-defeating yes so and you know she came out of it after a couple minutes and um you know but doesn't mean you know it still happened again like a half hour later mm. so it's one of those things where it's like even if you do correctly identify it and you know what it is it doesn't make it doesn't make it stop happening <laughs> it, there's um, not a magic wand that just stops it unfortunately i know and a lot as of people we all like that right it's like well if it's if it's my mind doing it i should be able to tell my mind to stop doing it but uh, it doesn't work quite that simply i wish yeah. Oh, I wish that would be amazing. I think that's the thing, though, isn't it? Like I've quite often said, like if if you had a broken leg, everyone would be able to see it. Everyone would know you have a broken leg. Like you can't yeah. go running because you have a broken leg. It's really obvious and easy to see. You go, yep, broken leg, broken bone. Okay, can't do it. But there's a way you just rest it. You have it in a cast. You don't go running. You don't jump off any buildings while you've got a broken leg. You know, there's there's a right. logical step you can go through. But with FND, that logical process is almost taken from you because it seems like such a random process yeah. and there's nothing like you're not wearing a cast you're not it, yes if you if i always say if you're sat down you look you might look okay and i right. don't mean that to sound bad but you might look okay but then when you start to walk people go oh you can't walk but when you're sat down there's nothing to give you away mm-hmm. and i think that's where the other thing is is because people will will judge and it's not necessarily meant in a malicious way although sometimes i'm sure it is like oh well you seem fine there's nothing wrong with you and then you're like hang on a minute like i can't walk and i can't talk you've just given me a glance as you've walked past me and i look like i'm okay um but it's just such a fickle 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 thing yeah and i I think in in a lot of neurologic diagnoses we we do like the quote-unquote uh invisible diagnosis right Mm. or an invisible disability Mm. um you know, like epilepsy, MS, um, yeah. FND, you know, migraines, all these things, mm. you know, they, they can be disabling, but to look at someone, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that there no. was anything that they were struggling with. Not unless you had a conversation with them. Right. And you actually kind of had a, quite an open conversation, but then equally, it's, a, it's not always the easiest thing to open up about, regardless what the condition is. Right. Yeah, it's you don't not... want to be talking to random strangers about it necessarily (laughs) just meet someone in the street but so i have this condition 
and off you go here's my life story um it's it's not the easiest thing but i there was a point i was going to make and i've forgotten that's not good that's annoying um it was a really good point as well and i felt really chuffed about it before i said it and i've promptly forgotten about it oh, you'll come back bother. that's annoying see you can just, you can just edit that part out oh uh, no this was just saying, <laughs> this is just my life i just get part way through a sentence and go wait what was i gonna say right yeah. next gone it's because i've lost the ability to think i don't have internal thoughts so whatever i say just comes out my mouth i don't actually think about it <laughs> so i have no internal voice telling me to stop talking and stop rambling right now i probably should but i don't so anyway moving on <laughs> yes um but yeah i think it's there's so much to all those conditions isn't there invisible or not there's so much with all of them it must present from a neurologist side it must be a lot of information you're storing in your head at any one time like you know uh right like i so i've like i said i've been i've been studying neurology for for 10 years now and you know it's one of those things where you just realize how much you don't know uh, mm -hmm. the more you learn and you know as i'm as i'm sitting here i have uh on my desk next to me like a, a stack of neurology textbooks um because <laughs> just I, in case I, I started quizzing you or something <laughs> well no well these ones are more introductory texts i've been working on some some curriculum design for some psychiatry residents oh, okay. but um <laughs> But I say, you're but, pretty safe. I'm not going to quiz you on anything too heavy. I don't have that skill set. I'll just use the internet instead. It's probably better. <laughs> but um, but it's, it's right. It's one of those things where it's like uh, I keep you know. There's just so much, so much more information, and neurology as a field is just advancing so rapidly. Mm. Like um, like this week the International Stroke Conference was going on, mm. and there's all these new studies coming out that are going to very likely change like the standards of care of acute stroke management in the next mm. year. And it's, it's just wild. Like I think back to when I finished residency compared to now, like the, the standard of care for, for some of these things is wildly different from what it was even yeah. just, you know, five, six years ago. And I don't see it slowing up, you know, it's like in every field, right. We've got, you know, new meds for all these different diagnoses um you know gene therapy for some of these things that like especially for you know child childhood disorders mm. that you know 20 years ago would have just been like a death sentence yeah and it's it's just amazing the the kinds of innovation and research that's going on in the neuroscience sphere is it it's it's challenging even just as a specialist to yeah. keep up with yeah but then i guess it must be really exciting as well because you're like think about you just said like five ten years ago like the stuff that was coming out is just so much so different now to where we are now and what's coming out now is so different to what was coming out 10 years ago think about in another 10 years time like yeah the, the advances that could be made in 10 in five years in a year's time whatever it might be is just mind-blowing um, right. and there could be answers to things that we thought we'd never have the answers to absolutely but like my I, brain hurts for yeah. you trying to maintain all that information <laughs> Like, I, I think the, the classic example is multiple sclerosis, mm. you know, uh, before the nineties, there were essentially no real disease modifying treatments. So mm. if you were diagnosed with MS before that, you know, it's like, well, you can look forward to a slow progressive decline in your ability to walk, think, see, mm. right. This would be terrible. So a cheery diagnosis really. Would yeah. <laughs> But now there's medications that exist that are very potent that can, you know, essentially 
for many people, stop the disease uh, yeah. from progressing um, to a very large extent. And, you know, people, once they get to a certain age, you know, like in their 60s, there's some debate about that. But, yeah. uh, you know, they might not need any therapy after that point. The immune system kind of calms down as you get older. But, mm. right, it's just that classic example of, like, things are just progressing, um, like the treatments, I mean. Mm. And it's it's just amazing. It's just my, it just, it just, I can't quite comprehend, I don't think anyone can quite comprehend the potential that there is because it's yeah. just so vast. There's so much potential in all of this and there are so many people working so hard to make those advances and to, you know, shed light on areas that have been kept in the dark and whatever it might be, new treatments, new kind of ways of thinking, all that stuff has so much potential and it's going to be so interesting to see where it all ends up. And it's going to be so beneficial for so many people. Yeah. Because it's going to have that that wider impact, isn't it? But it's just mind-blowing to, like, even start to try and think about it. Like, it makes my brain hurt even just trying to, like, comprehend tiny parts of it. Yeah. Now, I will say, like, one, you know, I know it sounds like all sunshine and roses. <laughs> um, but, uh, <clears throat> right, when we talk about many neurologic disorders, um some of them are fairly rare and so that means that the the costs of some of these treatments are quite high yeah like um the you know i know it's different in in the uk but uh in like the us obviously we don't have a national healthcare system mm. for better or worse mm. um i've I, ours is broken in a different way mm. but um <laughs> we just won't touch on that right now we could be yes. there for ages let's just let's move on <laughs> but um <clears throat> Like, uh, for instance, there's a disorder called spinal muscular atrophy, mm. and it's a genetic disorder, and it can affect people from, you know, the neonatal period up to, like, kind of, you know, adulthood yeah. uh, with different levels of severity, mm. right? So the kind that has its onset as a, as a newborn is pretty much fatal, right? They, they mm. develop weakness that leads to respiratory failure, and they pass away. Yeah. So, so there is gene treatment for this now, right? Mm. So one of the gene treatments that's available uh, on a semnogene, um, it's it's a one-time treatment, but one dose of it is two point one million dollars. Whoa! So it oh is, God. as far as I'm aware, the most expensive medication that exists uh, that is that's FDA approved in the U.S. My goodness me! Right? And you, th and you think about the families that might be in that position where they're desperately trying right. to get access to that. Right, and just because so, they don't have, how, yeah. I can't even remember the number you said, but because so they don't have millions on hand, right? They now, can't access that. In, insurance will cover that, but you have to get the genetic diagnosis first. Yeah. So you have like you have to jump through all the hoops first. You have, and you only have a few days really to, to jump on that too, yeah. right? It's it's very urgent, but um, right, it's one of those things where it's like this is all insane. Um, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> touch yeah and yeah so it's like yes we are making these amazing advances in treatments but who will they be available for yeah who can um, actually the people that need them right are they actually affordable right are they and, are they affordable for the average joe well yeah maybe not i don't i don't casually have a couple of million lying around the house you know as you do no. I don't know many people who do. No, neither do I. I don't know anyone that does. But you know, it's just it's the fact that they're like, if you're if you need it, I get it. It's taken a lot of time. It's taken a lot of like effort and like trialing and stuff like that. 
but equally for the people that need it, you're immediately telling them they can't have it because it's so expensive. Right. It blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. And it's like, um, you know, there was, there was a, you know, this is again, I'm going to dip into the insurance problem in the U.S. at least. There was a, oh, go for, it. <laughs> for people who are interested in, in the disaster that is U.S. healthcare. Um, <laughs> you phrased that so well as well. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, there was an excellent article by ProPublica uh, just this last month uh, where they were, they were talking about a, a young man with ulcerative colitis. Mm. And, you know, he, he had seen an expert at Mayo Clinic after he failed multiple medical regimens. And so they had kind of used a combination therapy, right? It was not FDA approved mm. and it was at a little bit higher than normal doses. But, um, but he had, you know, achieved disease remission of his ulcerative colitis, mm. which, you know, he's a young guy. He was, he was in a college athlete, you know, so, and he, you know, this disease had kind of you know, ruined his, obviously his athletic career and, mm. you know, you know, had caused a lot of other difficulties. Mm. And then there, God, you know, there are these phone recordings um, from some of the people in the insurance company. And I don't, at least to me, it doesn't sound very good. Mm. Um, so I would, I would say if anyone who's interested in, in the, the underbelly <laughs> of the insurance world, uh, the CD underbelly. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it really is. Uh, they should definitely check it out. Um, you know, it's just mind blowing, isn't it? It's it is. It is right, and I think that's what you what you get when you see different institutions with different motivations, right? Like these are a a for profit institution, so their their interest is not in providing patient care; it's in making money, mm. which you know. That's that's fine as far as it goes, but you know when you're breaking, or I shouldn't say breaking, right? I don't want to be accused of like you know libel or slander or whatever. <laughs> but uh, when you start fudging around the ethical corners of people's lives, fudging, I, think, I like it. Fudging. Yeah, I'm gonna keep it vague. <laughs> keep um, it vague. That's fine. But uh, you know, you wind up with these these very uh, terrible stories from a lot of different people. And, you know, it's, it's very easy, especially when you are like, you know, an, an accountant uh, looking at a spreadsheet to forget these are people's lives. Yeah, I think that's that's the problem, isn't it? Like, uh, I would imagine, especially with the insurance system that you guys have got, is that actually it takes that human element out of it because you're just you're just a number on a page, aren't you? And yeah. I guess that that takes that human and that empathy <clears throat> side that we were talking about right back at the beginning. It takes that out of it. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's that's something that we have in our favor is that obviously we do have the NHS. So there is that human element to it when we're not just numbers on a page to the same extent that you guys are. Um, but it just I think it's really hard to try and understand when you're not in it and living it. Yeah. Because you're like, well, it just doesn't make, from my side, from where I am having the National Health Service and things like that, I'm like, why? Why would that happen? What, what, what are they doing? But then I guess from your side, you're looking at our system going, why are they doing that? That doesn't make any sense either. So we're both sat there looking at the other yeah. one going, mm, here's not the best approach. Just that, is that what we need to be doing? Yeah. No, it's, um, at least in the US, it looks like, you know, kind of before the, the 1980s, uh, it was kind of where we saw like a big explosion in in costs in in mm. healthcare, and I think some of that was like these these different entities, mm. where you you disconnect the patient from the cost, and so you have this intermediary now, mm. and so 
so it does become well disconnected yeah and yeah that's it's a really? it's a whole problem uh yeah. essentially in terms of like you know you're not seeing the cost for like routine health care and you're only seeing it for these disastrous situations yeah um, do you find that yeah that um oh such a good question ah um do you find that impacts the people that you see yes like in terms of do pe are people do they hold off for longer to come and see you exactly because of that yeah no you're you're exactly right now granted i'm i'm in a uh, a rural area right mm. so I, i'm i'm a native ohioan for those who aren't familiar it's a lot of farmland <laughs> a lot of trees um, uh in in so certain parts like the southern so southern ohio kind of edges into the the appalachian mountains a little bit so there's like some forests national parks things like that mm. um but a lot of the central and northern part of the state is is more like farmland so a lot mm. of agricultural areas yeah so you know uh and some manufacturing so kind of like the prototypical rust belt kind of vibe um rust belt like it <laughs> yes but um you know, I, I'm going to imagine there's a certain cultural similarity uh, in farmers internationally hmm. uh, where you kind of get these people who are just like, like I, I remember distinctly this one patient as a resident um, who, you know, he, he was an, an older farmer, hmm. older guy, and he, you know, he'd been having some trouble walking. Like his left, you know, his, his one leg wasn't really working quite right. And mm -hmm. then, so you know, this has been going on for months, though. And so he comes into the hospital and, you know, you ask him, well, why'd you come in now? Hmm. And it's like, well, you know, my other leg started giving me problems. So I figured I better get checked out. Oh, bless. So, oh. but that, that, that is the kind of the, the mindset, right? Hmm. A lot of very stoic people. It's like, eh, it ain't, it ain't a big problem. You know, it's not falling off just yet. I can wait. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So they kind of put it off. I can still work. I can still take care of my business. Yeah. Um, and uh yeah so they don't seek out routine medical care very often and mm. some of that i think is the cost some of it i think is the mindset uh mm. of of the people yeah and you know i'm, I'm not immune from that myself i probably need to go see a dentist soon uh you know <laughs> i'm also not... falling under that one yep <laughs> yeah right it's it's one of those things where i i have not necessarily been following all of the recommended uh <laughs> timelines for when i should be getting checked out and so on and so forth but i guess when it costs so much money it it makes a difference doesn't it like you're you're making that call between you know going to a doctor or going to a dentist i'm going to use your dentist example yeah. going to the dentist or for some people putting food on the table for that for that week right. for that month like there's that there's that playoff isn't there yeah and you know just a, a little extra jab at united states healthcare you know the <laughs> dental and vision is not usually standard with your usual plan mm. right for whatever reason those are considered separate they're not they're different parts of your body so you got different <laughs> insurance for those it's like saying your ears are a separate part or your hands are a separate part but okay i know teeth. right fine sure <laughs> yeah boggling there there is some historical basis for that uh from what i've learned is just in terms of the development of the medical profession in the united states uh dentistry and optometry kind of developed a little separately yeah. right so it's it's this weird historical artifact that is still persisted <laughs> we've just kept day. we've just not got yeah. rid of to be fair it's the same here like you you can you can see you can go to a dentist on the nhs an example mm -hmm. but they only take a certain number of people so you do tend to end up it is it's called we'd say it's private but it's not private in the sense 
I mean, oh, you guys yeah. would experience it. Um, but it just seems mad. You're like, but you're, okay, sure. Yeah, we'll keep, that's fine. We'll keep that from whenever that first started happening. We won't change our minds. We'll keep it as it is. Not a problem at all. But I think it's something that as things get more and more expensive, there has to be that trade-off between, you know, how much is it, you, you aren't going to get people wanting to go in to see doctors, dentists, whoever it might be, because right. they are having to make the call between putting food on the table or going to the dentist. Like, yeah. there is that there is that thing. And then you end up with people waiting, like you're, the guy you gave the example of, waiting for longer than maybe they should have to go right. in and see someone. And then you end up in a worse position because you've had to wait so long. But equally, if they couldn't come in because they couldn't afford it, you're in that loop, aren't you? You can't quite break that. Oh, I'm sorry, my dog's decided okay. to bark. Oh my god, stop barking at me. They clearly disagree with me. Um <laughs> I don't know why they've suddenly formed opinions about the US health system, but okay. Um so yeah, it's it's that balance, isn't it? There's stop barking. Sorry. Um, That's okay. There's that balance, isn't there? And I think yeah. you can never quite get it right for everyone. It any even in a perfect world, it's never gonna be perfect for everyone. But I think they just have to be those considerations. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it is very challenging. This took far more of a political turn than I was expecting. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things where it's hard to hard to separate it sometimes, right? Because we yeah. want to provide care for the people we see, and you know, you have someone saying, "No, you can't do that," mm. um, or "No, we won't pay for that." And yeah. you know, as you know, we'll bring it back into FND. You know, a lot of people have been you know maybe they've had to reduce their hours or they've had to step away from their occupation yeah um and so it, it does become a significant barrier when we talk about the kind of the financial restrictions that that are kind of inherent to dealing with a chronic problem yeah um i, I i've actually remembered a question i was meant to ask you right back at the beginning and mm. promptly forgot because i got swept into our conversation <laughs> going really well and um, so Right about the video, we were obviously talking about diagnosis of FND, and there seems to be a couple of different opinions around this particular element and whether or not the acceptance of the diagnosis mm -hmm. is the thing that starts the recovery. Yeah. I've, I've spoken to a couple of people that have very firmly fought against that and said, no, absolutely not. It's just, you know, just what it is. They haven't accepted it for whatever reason. And then there's mm -hmm. another camp where... I, where I say, which is that I accepted it and I believe that accepting it is part of it. I don't believe it's the only reason to aid recovery, but I mm -hmm. believe it's a firm part of it. So I was just wondering where you sat from the neurological side. Yeah, no, I, I think it's an important piece of it as well um, mm. for, for a few reasons. So I, I think, like we talked about, you know, developing a good rapport, a good, a good relationship with your treatment team is, mm. is very important for, I think, some pretty obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you'd, you'd hope so. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think, I think that's kind of the, the, the most basic aspect of it is like trusting the people who are providing care to you is yeah. I think one going to reduce your stress uh, mm. by a large margin. <laughs> yeah. Um, and two, making sure that, you know, if, if there is this, this doubt in your mind, I, I would say not necessarily would it impede treatment, but, would it necessarily impede or I should say change the behavior of the people who don't uh, believe that they have the right diagnosis? Yeah. And in those cases, I would say it's kind of like, you know, 
what actions is it leading to? Like, is it leading to the person, you know, going, going to emergency more often mm. or seeking different opinions, maybe seeking some other types of therapy that may or may not be beneficial, um, you know, like complementary alternative therapies and things like that, which, you know, they can have their place if selected appropriately, mm. but, um, you know, do we wind up or, you know, they're maybe convinced that they have some other diagnosis um, like maybe like MS or mm. Parkinson's or something like that. And so they're looking to get second, third, fourth opinions from mm. different specialists. And so you wind up with a lot of extra cost, at least in the US, mm. um, as a... You never a, get in to see a second or a third. I'm, uh, this is not something yeah. I've, I've, I've come across in the UK. Yeah, that you right, see a second right. or a third one. <laughs> so it, it becomes one of those things where it's like, well, you know, you wind up uh, bouncing around from different specialists, different different treatment uh, areas, and yeah. you know there there are you know some let's just say unscrupulous people in the healthcare space out mm. there who will take care, uh, who will take your money, mm. um, and will treat you. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to say something controversial. You know, okay, like, go for like, it. Like chronic Lyme disease mm. is is a very controversial thing. Um, mm. In as much as like, you know, you have these uh, quote unquote Lyme literate physicians out there who will give people like chronic antibiotics or weird infusions and things like that. Mm. And, you know, I'll, I'll put my chip down. I, I think that's totally inappropriate uh, mm. and unethical. Now, I'm not saying people don't have sequelae of Lyme infection, you know, like chronic pain, chronic fatigue syndrome, so mm. on and so forth. Like those are certainly real sequelae. But it's like an active diagnosis versus um, versus the you know post-infectious sequelae, mm. and you know just as a, as a for instance. But but there are people who will like you know latch onto this like ah this this doctor has given me a real objective diagnosis and they're giving me like you know infusions or medication or things like that. Yeah. Um, and. I think a lot of people have to watch out for that um, mm. when we are dealing with something that's, a, you know, I think fair to say a little more nebulous uh, in terms of the diagnostic criteria and mm. a lot of times very often misdiagnosed in the initial years. Yeah, I think that misdiagnosis is is such a a big part of it as well, isn't it? Like there are so many people out there who will have been misdiagnosed, not necessarily maliciously, but right. just based on the information provided at that time. But then you kind of, you're in that, if they've been misdiagnosed and they've accepted the one they've been misdiagnosed for, right? then if something else comes up and you've got a new symptom and you go back and they say, oh, actually it's not MS, for example, it's now this weird thing called FND. Right. I would imagine you will reject that to begin with because you're like, well, I've just been dealing with my life for the past two years under the assumption that this is MS. So I don't right. want to now accept that this is FND because how, how, what's not to say that in two years time, it will change again. Right. Yeah. And I, I have had that exact conversation with people who have been diagnosed with epilepsy for years and, mm. you know, they finally get referred in and, you know, we, we say like, well, no, these aren't epileptic seizures. These are functional seizures. Mm. Um, and you probably shouldn't be on any anti-seizure medications. Mm. And you know, you you would think I was like coming in and trying to kill their cat. Um, 
It's hard and, though. I would it is right. Like, it, you're it shattering becomes, what they thought. Yeah, I. Yeah, you are. You're. This is sometimes something that's become part of someone's identity. It's been, mm. you know, kind of their cross to bear. Yeah. And they maybe they've made their peace with with that diagnosis, mm. and you're just kind of upsetting that whole apple cart. Mm. And or just yeah, throwing in a couple of peaches just for the sake of it, you know. That's just... right, you know. And a lot of times, if it is like I, you know, I, you've just met me. Why should you trust me? Mm. You know, like who who am I, right? Yeah. Um, and so that that is it is very hard to establish that level of trust uh, <laughs> that quickly. Yeah, because and... you don't see people for very long. You're in there for like, I mean, here you're probably in there for maximum of like twenty minutes, half an hour uh that's not long yeah well I, I usually try and you know at least 45 minutes to an hour but um <laughs> well here it's slightly quicker from my experience it's slightly quicker <laughs> i mean don't be wrong there are there are places where it is like that but it's just mm. i've refused to practice that way because <laughs> <laughs> i can't do i can't do my job right mm. um but but it is uh it is one of those problems where it like you said right if you're kind of this little rush rush in rush out and where where is the the trust and if yeah you've yeah, got no time it, for the empathy which we said right back at the beginning yeah exactly you're just, you're, you're you've already got quite a lot to find out anyway because you need to understand people's stories right you need to understand how they're presenting and things like that yeah. equally you've got to have time to go right okay now i think it's xyz and explain it explain what's going to happen next what that means for mm -hmm. them long term there's so much to fit into that consultation <laughs> So right. you have time to breathe during it, really. And, you know, as as you probably are aware, right, people can have more than one type of spell. Mm. So, like, I remember one one woman in particular um, I saw when I was a fellow. And we had, she had come into the, the epilepsy monitoring unit, right? And we had caught, uh, like, three or four spells. And these were typical spells. But she had had multiple types of spells. So we'd only caught one of them. And they were all non-epileptic, and her EEG had been entirely normal uh, up until that. And we were getting ready to discharge her from the hospital. Mm -hmm. And then that morning, uh, like literally an hour before she was supposed to go home, she she had an epileptic seizure. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, and that's that's the that's the the history part, right? It's like, well, we yeah. didn't capture all the spells, so we can't say definitively that there is no epilepsy. Mm -hmm. And so that that is the that's part of that intake history right if we don't get like well i have these spells where i stare off i have spells where i shake i have spells mm. where i have a weird feeling of some kind or another or you know, talking like, a different language i know people that yeah do that. <laughs> like you know some kind of speech disturbance right mm. and so you have to you have to categorize and catalog all these types of things and if you you know, if you want to be as certain as possible, right, you have to, you have to catalog all these things and categorize mm -hmm. them. And that's a lot of talking, right, to cram yeah. into 30 minutes. Yeah, it's a lot going on, yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it's one of those things where logistically, it just becomes so challenging that, um, that you, if you don't take the time, you will miss things. And, you know, I've, I've certainly had, had people that I've seen in the past where it's like, well, the story sounds like FND. Mm. And then, you know, I, I redo the testing and I'm like, oh, well, these are epileptic seizures. I, yeah, <laughs> I was totally wrong. Yeah. Um, it's like having the pieces to a jigsaw puzzle, but without the picture. <laughs> like you don't, yeah. you don't know what you're actually trying to create, but you have all these pieces of their story and these are your literal puzzle pieces, but you don't know what the picture's going to be yet because you can't see right. it. 
but you and, can only see it if you broaden your your viewpoint out i'm doing lots of gestures sorry yeah no it's it's very true and that's one of the things i always talk about with my my medical students is that um a lot of times you know we we spend all this time in training learning learning this medical language and mm. when you're talking with someone who who is not in medical. healthcare, yeah it's a it's a you're using different words to describe the same phenomena so mm. it's uh you know it's this translation issue like you need like we always talk about like you know people who are professionals using jargon too much when they're talking with someone outside yeah. of their field right and that's it's it's the same thing but in reverse right so you need to sort of like you know what do you mean by that you know so mm. you got to really what dig does that into, look like for me yeah. What exactly. does that now mean I have to go and do or I have to go learn about to be able to manage whatever it is you've just told me that I can't even begin to spell? Like that's that's yeah. what it comes down to, isn't it? Right. I think you get swept into it, don't you? You're like, oh, it's da -da 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 -da, and you explain it in a really medical way because that's what you know. Right. And then if the person doesn't go, I haven't got a clue what you've just said, you hmm. go, okay, cool, you've got it. Moving on. And of course, most people are like, well, I don't want to sound like I don't know what's going on. So I'll just say, yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't want to sound stupid. Right. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, like one of the, one of the biggest challenges I I run into is that um, like like oh I'll be, or I'll be talking with like a family member who saw the person have an episode or what have you and I'll be like well tell me what happens like oh well we were walking down the street and and he had a seizure I'm like okay what does that look like mm. you know uh, what what act just describe what happened you know it's like start me at want, the beginning what yeah like I don't want you beginning? to tell me a diagnosis that's mm. That's my job. Mm. I want you to just describe, you know, how Take me a picture. Yeah, exactly. A word picture. Yeah. And, Run me through from the beginning to the end. Lots of detail. Lots of and, adjectives, please. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like what was the very first thing? The very first thing. Like, how mm. did you know anything was even wrong? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I know people. And that's one of the things, right? A lot of times we're in medicine, we're taught to ask open-ended questions. But this is one of those situations where I'm like, no, I want very specific details, mm. uh, painfully specific. Like, it's like, okay, we jumped too far forward. Let's go back again. It's like, okay, now let's drill down into this piece and mm. let's let's talk a little bit more about these 30 seconds right here. Yeah, I'm really interested in this 10 second gap. If you could give me as much information about this 10 seconds, that would be really helpful. Right. You're like, how and, much can I say? It's 10 yeah. seconds. <laughs> yes. And, you know, the, the challenging part is not necessarily from from family or friends who witnessed someone's spell, um, almost more with like people in healthcare, um, like you know, not to knock on like the nursing staff or my emergency department colleagues. But That's it. Uh, don't stop making enemies now. That would no, not be no, good. <laughs> no. I, but it's like you know, I ask them to just you know, it's it's like you, it's a vocabulary, right? Mm. If you don't know the words. But people try and medicalize it too much. And it's like, mm -hmm. no, I don't need you to say, like, like just tell me what happened. And I can then translate it into medical right. language. Some I just but, need you to give me the bare bones. But yeah, some people in 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 healthcare will get a little offended when you try and drill down. Like, mm -hmm. like you're implying you don't trust their judgment, which I mean, to be fair, I'm just, I don't. Uh, but... <laughs> I happen to be taking a sip of water as you said that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Very nearly just sprayed water everywhere. It's fun. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like there there are certainly like seizures that are like, yes, that is 100%, you know, like a bilateral tonic-clonic, quote-unquote grand mall, you know, I'm if we sorry, want to use the what? 1980s nomenclature, which everyone still uses. Uh, uh, I, don't even, I don't even know where to begin with that sentence that you've just said. Uh, to, <laughs> what? To, the, okay, moving on. I, no, I'm not going to get it. Move on. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's like... 
there are, as we said, right, many different types of spells, many different types of events. Some of them are seizures, some of them are not. And I need, I need you just to give me like the description of what happened, like the same as anyone else off the street, mm. so that I can get a more clear picture. And yeah. a lot of times people get upset. Uh, like, like I've, I've been called to like, you know, rapid response codes in the hospital and things like that. And they're like, oh, he's having a seizure. I'm like, and at this point, they're just kind of like, you know, drowsy. Mm. Like, well, what happened? And like, well, he had a seizure. I'm like, yeah, but what happened? What did it look like? Exactly. And yeah, so, you know, you you try not to be rude about it. And I, I, I think I do an okay job. But but if it's like, if it's an urgent situation, sometimes you have to be a little brusque. Yeah. Um, and it's like, no, no, I need you to describe it. Yeah, because it might change yeah. what medication you give and things like that. Might, right, it right. has knock-on effects. And I think that's the thing. I think there's quite often people misconstrue bluntness for rudeness yeah and sometimes actually you're not you're not doing it to be rude you're you're asking the direct question because you need that information for there's a reason for it you're not asking the question to be rude you're asking yeah. to gain the information to be able to do the next step but and, i can imagine yeah. that can be taken as oh you're just being rude you don't trust me like it's a hard balance yeah and i guess in neurologist you have a bit of reputation for for I that sort of i wasn't going to comment on that i was going to leave that one alone <laughs> You seem lovely, so I'm just going to leave that one alone. No, I, I appreciate that. But I, I am aware of the stereotypes that apply to my profession. Um, Every profession has stereotypes, though, so it's absolutely fine. Yes, yes. We're, we're, know, we've all got something to do with our profession. We, we're doing what we can to break those stereotypes, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah, I, and like you said earlier, right? Just talking to people like they're people, I think, is is the is the biggest thing. But mm -hmm. I... I do. I did have an instructor who who was. I, I shouldn't say too much. Uh, he's probably not going to listen to this, but <laughs> just um, in case. <laughs> but you know, he he really wouldn't make make eye contact, and he wasn't the best bedside manner, mm. and you know. But he was a very excellent clinician. Mm. Um, but uh, but I don't think he had had the best rapport with his patients from time to time. Now, and sometimes that's that's yeah. what makes the difference, isn't it? Yes. Having that rapport with someone, especially when you're delivering <coughs> news which is going to shatter who their world, just even the tiniest bit, regardless yeah. of how much it does, having that rapport with someone and, and just being that little bit human for that minute yeah. actually could make all the difference to them. Like Absolutely. You just don't know. You don't know the impact that that will have on how they then accept the diagnosis, where they then choose to go. Do they see it as a motivation? Do they see it as whatever it might be? that split second where you're like oh i just won't look at them as i sit that could that could mean so many different things to so many different people mm -hmm. like and there's just no way of knowing what the the kind of the ripple effect of that would be yeah oh, it's mind blowing everything's just mind blowing i feel like my mind has exploded um <laughs> i just want to say like thank you so much for coming on and chatting to me i feel like i've had a bit of a crash course in neurology i feel like i've gained so much a bit so many like bits of knowledge now i feel like my head has grown a couple of sizes so i'm like huh kind of know what's going on this is good um just to kind of finish us off if you had one bit of advice for fellow neurologists diagnosing fnd or working with people with fnd or any other or epilepsy whichever you can take your pick i don't mind sure what would your bit of advice be um i would say just i think listening uh to the story and mm. making sure that you understand what the people are saying i think that's the biggest piece to understanding what what you're dealing with and yeah. 
you know, it's it's one of those things where I think as as neurologists, a lot of times we're looking for a very specific thing to to do or to treat. Sometimes that is just reassurance. Hmm. Um, but I I would always I would always tell my residents uh, when I was working with neurology residents is that you know it doesn't matter how how silly we might think the question that we're being posed by some consultation is is mm. that if you look in the right places there's usually something that we can address or help clarify mm. even if that is just taking a a thorough history of of the of the problem down yeah um, because a lot of times that hasn't been done and just taking that time getting a fleshed out story a description of what's going on mm. and making sure you know maybe there isn't anything else maybe there is but if you don't look for it you'll never find it yeah and if you don't ask the questions you'll never know so there's there's that that's that's that sort of balance isn't there and something that someone might deem to be quite small in their own history could actually be the real key for you guys as medical professionals to work out what needs to happen next yeah i can't you, you... i can't tell you how many times you've been taking a story down and you're just like i'm not sure where this is going and then someone mentions something they think is just kind of like a throwaway yeah uh, bit of information and you're just like oh now it makes complete sense now i get it all right <laughs> i now i yeah. know where we're going okay yeah. i can now work out where we need to go next because of that bit but i think it's quite often because people feel it's really small they're like oh i don't need to include it yeah yeah Oh, no, wait, hang on. That's the most important part. Yeah. But it's hard, isn't it? And I can tell you, like, there is nothing more satisfying when you're taking a history than coming to that realization and be like, like, where you're just like kind of, you know, maybe floundering a little bit mentally. You got your professional face on, obviously. But obviously. <laughs> but internally, you're like, I don't know what the heck is going on. on. <laughs> and then you just get that little nugget of information and you're like, oh, thank goodness. Now, now, now I know I what it. to do. It's okay. I've got this. And then you like, it's maybe that's when they all start to like do that really big smile because they've had that moment and go, ah, yes, on it. Got uh, it. Yes. No worries. <laughs> yes. It is. It is the most immensely satisfying feeling uh, to go imagine. from confusion to certitude is the best I could I can fully imagine that would be well thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me I feel like I've learned so much and actually gained a really good understanding of what it's like from your side um even if you are in the U.S. just having that <laughs> being able to understand it from the the professional side is really helpful and I hope that people out there um also find it helpful so thank you so much for coming on and giving up part of your day to chat with me it's well, much appreciated you. um so stay tuned guys for the next episode i don't know if it'd be as long as this one but stay tuned you never know thank you very much <laughs>